This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, welcoming my good friend Dave Green. How you doing, Dave? I am uh, fine, Bob. Once again, always uh, enjoy the, the ride along here for some verbal conversation. And we're talking about history today, and Dave and I have uh, spent most of our lives working in radio. And this first history story really has to do with radio. And the question that you have, or the question that I think uh, this story occasions, is uh, what do you save? And this maybe doesn't just apply to radio, but applies to other endeavors as well. Um, I call this story, which uh, did appear in the Daily Gazette, Focus on History, Voice from the Past. His son and grandson want to hear the voice of Rabbi Samuel A. Bloom once again. Rabbi Bloom came to Amsterdam in 1949, and he served as the rabbi at Congregation Sons of Israel for 39 years, a very long run, if you will. Born in Savannah, Georgia, he was ordained in Brooklyn. He later earned a doctorate at New York University. Married a woman uh, from the New York City area, as I understand it, Eleanor Golub, not related to the Golubs up here, as far as the family knows. Uh, and she had her own career. She was executive director of United Synagogue of America for the Empire Region on the board of the National Jewish Youth Directors of America. But back to Rabbi Bloom. He died in office, if you will, in Amsterdam. In other words, he was still rabbi when he passed away. And according to his obituary, Rabbi Bloom was heard regularly over WCSS radio in Amsterdam for 30 years. A 1965 newspaper story reported his commentary was broadcast Saturday mornings at 9 on WCSS. However, and I've spoken with them both, apparently neither the radio station nor the family saved any of the recordings. The rabbi's son, physician Michael Bloom of Clarence out in western New York, wrote me a letter when I, I did a story, an earlier story about uh, Rabbi Bloom in my uh, column. And Dr. Bloom, the son of the rabbi, said, I remember vividly accompanying my father as he recorded the tapes for his radio show and how hard it was for me to be perfectly silent as I sat next to him. Dr. Bloom, that's the son, said that finding recordings of his father's radio talks would mean a great deal to his family. I really knew this story kind of had legs when not only did I hear from Dr. Bloom, I heard from Dr. Bloom's son, one of the grandchildren of Rabbi Bloom, a man named Joshua Bloom, who's an attorney in Buffalo. He wrote, quote, I, unlike my dad, never even heard my grandfather's voice after about age three. So for me, it would be a truly incredible experience to find any of these recordings or even to find a transcription, unquote. So that's the quest uh, I'm on, Dave, or uh, the quest the Bloom family's on. They'd like to find a recording of Rabbi Bloom, but nobody seems to have one. So, so you're thinking that there's a, a, a listener of the rabbi somewhere out there who may have just uh, tape recorded this at the time. Well, extra content, if you will. I have been in touch with uh, my friend uh, Diane Hale-Smith, who's the widow of Lloyd Smith, a longtime uh, morning host at uh, WCSS. And if anybody saved Rabbi Bloom recordings, it probably would have been Lloyd. And it's just that uh, Lloyd left uh, voluminous uh, copies of you know recordings, and uh, Diane hasn't 
you know, I don't know if they're organized in any particular way. So Diane has her eyes open for this sort of thing. But Lloyd was a saver, you know, and I'm not, for example, uh, not that, you know, uh, you know, we don't want to pump ourselves up. But, you know, you realize I, d I don't know if there are any recordings of things that I've done, you know, from the from old days in radio that still exist. How about you? I mean, any of your old recordings, let's say the days you did trivia on WGY or back when you were up in Syracuse and you had this convict who was looking for you and all that sort of thing? <laughs> uh, there, there, I found a couple of them. Our good friend, our good friend Peter Reeve was a collector. Yeah. And uh, he has a collection of WGY audio from over there. There's got to be somebody out there who, you know, it's right this second, if you... You need you need to run the ad uh, on uh, what Craigslist? Yes, that probably so. And I have an idea the Blooms will. In fact, my idea of doing the column to bring some interest uh, came after Joshua Bloom sent me a laundry list of things that he was prepared to do. And he was wondering, um, and I don't really know the answers to these uh, questions, which I'm bringing up here on our history show. He said, "Well, what kind of archives exist for uh, audio recordings?" Mm. I'm not exactly sure. My hunch is that uh, the Library of Congress probably has a certain number of them. Out at Syracuse University, where there's a well-known uh, broadcasting school, I believe your lovely wife Mary attended it, um, they have something called the Belfer Audio Archive. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, no, no, I'm not, but I am thinking there is a name that pops into my head here that would relate to the time period anyway, and I believe it was Wallensack. Wallensack. Yeah, the, remember the Wallensack tape yeah, recorders? I and do. Somebody, you could, I suppose you could start there, and uh, I don't know, that's a long shot, but somebody who owned one at the time would likely have been, you know, put this thing to use. Let's record yeah. some of these shows. Well, and it's interesting. And it's in a and basement somewhere in Amsterdam this very second. Probably so. And, you know, I do wonder that Rabbi Bloom, for example, apparently did not save any himself. But on the other hand, I just said, I haven't really saved any recordings. The, the, from... the radio station at the time was not running what they refer to as a scanner tape? I don't know. I don't believe that was done. Because what year did he leave WCSS? I'm not sure. I think he may have been recording these up until he died. And I'm looking here for the, the date. He, I believe he died in the 1980s. Yes, he died in 1988. And they, I suppose, could have had a scanner tape. Easily. Then. Yeah, matter but of fact, I they were more. They, they were much more used back prior to that into the '60s, '70s, and mm -hmm. into the early '80s. People, yep. there was a tape that just ran 24 hours a day that recorded everything, everything on the station for FCC purposes. Yeah, but I have an idea. There probably was a time limit on keeping them. You know, you maybe had Could to keep be. them Could for be. five years or whatever it is, according to the government, and then probably they started using it over again. Well, I think, you know, certainly the, there is some fun in this, doing a little investigative reporting. Yeah. And also, uh, and again, I'd written earlier about uh, Rabbi Bloom, and he was the kind of person, you know, I'd like to hear his voice now, because I, I sort of have a vague memory of it myself, having grown up in uh, Amsterdam, that it seemed to me he spoke more often on the radio than other 
uh, clergymen or clergy people, you know what I mean? In other words, I think maybe because he liked it and he was good at it. Uh, I went to the newspaper archives, which paint a portrait of Rabbi Bloom as a very active speaker. Uh, I just, you know, picked up a couple of highlights. He, here he is in 1954 recounting the history of the Jewish experience in America for a Kiwanis Club meeting in Gloversville. In 1958, He's speaking to the Amsterdam Rotary Club, saying, religion won't save us from all suffering and pain, but can help us understand why we suffer. He spoke out on the issue of the Vietnam War uh, in 1969. He said he feared the war would last another five years. And that same year, his synagogue hosted an interfaith Thanksgiving service, which was so well attended, it had to be repeated. Uh, such a large crowd showed up that they had to... Um, you know, do it a second time, uh, if you will. So he was well known as a as a speaker and as a clergyman in in Amsterdam. Uh, so I think it would be interesting to hear what he uh, had to say. So somebody at one of those events, Bob, recorded the recorded the event. Could be. I mean, his private speaking events. Yes, probably so. Right. But, so so we 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 transition here from checking the basements of Amsterdam to. Some of his speaking locations, some of those, the yeah, yeah, and again, the the family would just like like to hear it again. Uh, you well, and again, I was going to say you wonder why the rabbi or his family didn't save the recordings, but you know, it 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 could possibly even be because he was a, you know a moral you know a moral person. He didn't think it was right or something like that, or you know it was too uh, highfalutin to, to make a collection of his recordings. The only person I know of who did that. And it's it is an issue when you, the person passes on, as the man I'm talking about has. Uh, but um, my friend Jack Keenan, who was the old time radio uh, host for many years on Rise, which uh, we're heard on with the Historians podcast, Jack saved uh, all of his uh, all of his recordings, and uh, I believe that the you know the family still has them, and you know there's certain discussion that that family as to you know what the, what to do with them now that Jack has passed. Well, I'm a little like you, Bob. I really never saved anything. I yeah, well, I never I saw the say, point of it. Yeah, I've got a few, you know, two or three. You know, but it, it did occur to me. I remember sometime during our uh, run up in Amsterdam, but from 2004 to 2014, I read an article that, that quoted the well-known shock jock or, or entertainer, Howard Stern. And Howard Stern, for some reason... I'm quite sure that he says something. In fact, you got to do it. You got to save. You know, he, he was like an inside radio sort of piece. You got to save what you do. Well, and, that, that's and because it, he turned around and would sell his product. Yeah. Right. So and, I, and rerun that on a daily basis. We, on the other hand, no particular use for it whatsoever. Right. Or, and it's just very difficult because I, I did start doing that on, on cassette, which was what was still you know, available to me then to make a recording the whole show. So I probably did maybe a couple of years, but then at some point, you know, Audrey's saying to me, you know, uh, you know, could use a little more room in the closet here, you know? <laughs> so I, I did, you know, discard a lot of the tapes. Yeah, so. that's what happened. After a while, I gotta get, I gotta get this stuff out of here. So that's the story of voice from the past. I do have another uh, tale to tell uh, from the Mohawk Valley that I, I write about. You're listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore along with Dave Green. This is a story about the lighthouse in Cranesville. First off, have you ever heard of that? 
I mean, does that ring a bell? I've, I have heard you mention this, this, this was really a beacon for those who were speeding on Route 5. Is this what we're talking about? That's true. That's, that's what it was. And it, it, was also, it was something that, you know, I write you know, a story a week for the newspaper about history. Some stories have more interest in it than others. And I've had more people ask me to do a story about the lighthouse in Cranesville. Uh, one of my uh, uh, big reader or readers uh, and contributors is a young uh, man named Emil Suda. And Emil say, hey, you got to write about this because it's a story that has a couple of facets to it. So I don't know. Let me, let me get to it here. We start with George Washington Phillips, a leading citizen of the Montgomery County hamlet of Cranesville, made his home a lighthouse to guide motorists on busy Route 5. Little bit about Mr. Phillips. He was born across the river from Cranesville in the town of Florida, July 4th, 1890. He came from a prominent family. His family gave their name to what were called the Phillips Locks on the Erie Canal. They once donated a big tract of land in the town of Florida uh, to the city of Amsterdam, which was used as a park called Phillips Park. And George Phillips' father was a man named Myron Phillips. And in 1900, he bought some land over in Cranesville at the foot of Cranes Hollow Road. Uh, Cranesville, a little hamlet just to the east of uh, Amsterdam, maybe four or five miles. So Myron Phillips had a home built uh, at Cranes Hollow Road and Route 5. It wasn't called Route 5 then. It was called the Mohawk Turnpike at a cost of less than $3,000. And George Phillips grew up there. He attended Amsterdam schools, held a variety of mill and retail jobs. He and his father worked on a scow transporting stone from Fultonville to Schenectady on the Erie Canal. He studied stenography at business school. He plied that trade for a real estate firm then worked for S.H. Swift, a company in the knit-good business, for about 35 years. George Phillips served in the National Guard. He was discharged from that in 1915, which was a big year for him. George Phillips in 1915, still living uh, at the house at, on Cranes Hollow Road at Route 5. He joined the Cranesville Reformed Church, which is next door to the family home, and then married... Ethel Ann DeForest, who was also from Cranesville. They had one child, Roy DeForest Phillips, who was born two years later. George Phillips went about his life. He was a pillar of that church. He was Sunday school superintendent for 25 years. He was credited with making the men's fellowship successful. Also, and this is kind of an aside, he had a well drilled on his lawn in 1928. And I see him making the newspapers in 1936 as the, the newspaper picture in 1936 shows him drawing water from the well's overflow pipe. And in the summer months, this well became attractive to hundreds of motorists, the newspaper story said, who stopped to cool their throats at the well. I know that's something you do, Dave. You go to a well to get your drinking water. I've had some of that water. It's good stuff. It is. And I think, and in fact, uh, well, anyway, there'll be a footnote on the well when we're done with the story about George Phillips making the lighthouse. And in 1958, there's a newspaper photo showing Phillips at the well toasting another famous citizen of Cranesville, at least famous to people in Cranesville in the Amsterdam area, 
uh, famous justice of the peace, Malcolm Malpas. There's a picture of Phillips with a cup of water toasting uh, Justice Malpas with a cup of water. The reason he's famous, he was a real, well, he wasn't exactly a hanging judge, didn't hang people. But if you were a speeder in Cranesville and you appeared before Justice Malpas, you could expect a very stiff fine. Mm -hmm. Not in my town. <laughs> That's right, not in my town. And as years went by, that became more of an issue, speeding. Uh, for Judge Malpas and other people in Cranesville as Route 5, you know, became Route 5 and it became a busier highway. This is the highway that uh, connects uh, Amsterdam and uh, with Scotia first and ultimately uh, Schenectady. In, the, in 1960, the state began a reconstruction called the Cranesville Arterial in which they made the road a four-lane highway. And that moved the road closer to the Phillips home, and I hadn't mentioned, it's the Phillips home, is in addition to being adjacent to the uh, Cranesville Reformed Church, in one direction, is adjacent to a Jewish cemetery, Temple of Israel Cemetery in the other. So the, in 1960, the road was moved closer to both the cemetery and to the Phillips home, and Phillips told a reporter, they can't get much closer. Fearing for the safety of motorists, he, he began illuminating his home every night by putting lights in the windows, you know, electric lights. We're not talking, you know, it's 1960. Put lights in the windows and on the front and back porches. At the peak, there were 45 lights and 41 switches. And he had to go around the house and <laughs> do that as a, as a routine every night. And Hugh Donlin, a well-known reporter for the Amsterdam Recorder newspaper, wrote, quote, the beacon is visible as far east as Sword Hill, adding an atmosphere of friendliness that well reflects sentiments of both homeowner and community. I'll send you a picture of this uh, for our podcast. I think it would be good to illustrate it, you know, showing the lighted up Phillips house. And also the Phillips house, at least in later years, had a big P on it, you know, so you knew that it was the Phillips house. However, uh, George Phillips had his limits to lighting the house. He shut off his lights, he said, before midnight. Quote, if they're not in by 11, they can find their own they're way home. On their own. <laughs> so, now, I'm Mr. Only, Phillips. I'm only going to do, do this so long for you. <laughs> I know. It's just what he said. But he was that kind of a, kind of a gentleman. I mean, I think a little, um, I don't know if the word is eccentric, but, uh, you know, he, he had his definite point of view. Yeah, yeah, I've got a, you know, we've all, we all have limits, Bob. Yep. So George Phillips' wife, Ethel, died in 1964. Phillips stayed active. And another thing that, you know, of common interest of you and I, for you and me and for a lot of other people, he was involved somewhat with a railroad. For many years, he was president of the Amsterdam, Chuctanunda, and Northern Railroad, which I think in its heyday uh, was had one locomotive, you know, one switcher engine. It was a short spur built in 1879 to connect the main line with whatever it was. It used to be the New York Central, now it's CSX, to connect the main line with Amsterdam factories. There's still that connection. I'm not positive they actually still use it. They moved it at some point uh, so that it mainly served this industrial park, which is up on one of the hills in Amsterdam. So for many years, he was president of that railroad. I'm not sure if that was like an honorary title or he made money at it, but uh, there were a couple of clippings in the newspaper about uh, his connection with the railroad. His trademark, George Phillips' trademark, was a flower in his lapel every day. Always wore a flower in his lapel. Classy. 
In the summer, he grew his own. And in the winter, he made a daily trip to an Amsterdam florist. I believe it was Mary and Belle, which was a florist back in the days that I can remember. His lighthouse in Cranesville was the subject of numerous stories in the media, including a write-up in the employee publication of the former Niagara Mohawk Power Company. So he started the lighthouse around in about 1960, and I believe it continued until his death in 1989. He died in 1989, a few months before his 99th birthday. Oh, and I'm the, not really sure. I, I didn't put it in the story, and I'm not positive whether anybody kept lighting the house after he died, but he, he uh, I believe he lighted it until or, or shortly before he died. The church next door that he was a member of bought the building, bought the Phillips home, and used it at first for Sunday school and other purposes. But then Phillips's son, Roy, owned a house on the other side of Crane's Hollow Road, a smaller house, and Roy, don when he died, his will donated the church uh, to, I'm sorry, donated his house to the church after his after Roy died and his wife, who was a woman named Marie Lamphere Phillips, both died. The church activities that had been going on in the former lighthouse, the original Phillips mansion or home, were transferred to the smaller residence across the road, and time went on. There was some damage to all these properties in 2011 in what was known as the Cranesville tornado, but it really wasn't substantial. I mean, it was something that could be repaired, but I spoke with a historian of the Cranesville Reformed Church, which again now owns the former lighthouse, and uh, the historian, a man named Bruce Knudsen. And Mr. Knudsen said that after, uh, over the years, and maybe especially after 2011, the original Phillips house came to need costly repairs, and the church didn't know what to do. So in uh, 2014, they decided what to do. They tore down the building. So the former uh, lighthouse of Cranesville, you don't see it anymore. You just see an empty lot with a sign that the church has posted. However, one thing you do see is I in hope the, the middle, sign is lighted. Yes, the sign is lighted. You're absolutely right. And in the middle, though, there's a well. I haven't stopped there, but my hunch is that's the original well of uh, George Phillips. It's there. Interesting story. I, and I, I, can, I can understand why Niagara Mohawk at the time or National Grid <laughs> did the write-up. I mean, after all, he helped pay the bills for such a long period of time. That he did. And, you know, apparently he was, he was happy to do so. Um, to, and it was, a, you know, quite a, quite a beacon. And again, um, with the connection with Justice Malpas, I think that was, uh, you know, a place that, you know, that you were inclined to speed or that motorists were inclined to speed. You know what I mean? Really, it's, Bob? Yeah. It's out in the country. I mean, Cranesville always has been pretty much a real hamlet. You know, it's not, you know, it has that, it had the Phillips home, it has the former tower, the Valentino's restaurant, the church, the fire department. You know, a few buildings, even when it was the old Route 5. But especially when they put in that four-lane highway. <laughs> oh, this is, it's time to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do. There are certain stretches of road you think you can absolutely get away with it. I think so. By the way, just a sidestep here because I made the note. I'm sure you're up to date on this, but I, did I, re, I did I recently read that uh, the sister of Kirk Douglas died? Yes, I, I believe that's so. I, I, right. Uh, one of the sisters who lived in the Albany area right. uh, passed away. I can't remember now uh, that particular sister's name, 
but uh, she passed away. Uh, most Kirk had several sisters. I'm uh, I don't have the facts in front of me, but I think it was five or six sisters, and I believe all of them but one lived in the Albany area. One, I think, went out to Hollywood and, and worked for her brother, at least for a time. Um, but yeah, and Kirk had his 99th birthday. Had another nice run. Yeah, and, and a nice do you, run. Do you plan on making age 99, Bob? I don't know. It's <laughs> it's a, it's a it's long, a long way off. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not that long of a way off, is it? Anymore? It's not that far, but nonetheless, that's a reach. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, you know, and, and, you know, at this point, Kirk Douglas being alive, I know it's it's a funny thing. It's one of those comforting things to me. I think, well, Kirk is still alive. Uh, you know, I stand a chance. I stand a chance. <laughs> because, you know, one of, um, you know, she'll not be pleased. You know, I'm bringing her into this because she doesn't like uh, publicity. But one of Miss Audrey's habits is she reads the obituaries every day. And I'm often there at the breakfast table. Uh, you know, I thought you were going to end that sentence with "you're often there." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point I won't be there at the breakfast table. But yeah, but um, you know, and she'll uh, you know talk about you know this one or that one. Uh, I don't know. Today we had quite a session. You know, the day of our uh, recording, there was a major general who died. You know, these are all people. You know, like the local uh, Daily Gazette uh, obituaries. Mm-hmm. And, and she keeps up, therefore, with people that um, she know she knows. So, for example, I won't name names, but there was a person who died today. She goes, oh, I wonder if he's related to so-and-so. And so, well, once again, she gets out the smartphone and turns out, yes, you know, the, this young man who died. That that always disturbs. She always comments on the people who die who are, like, in their 40s. Really? 45? Oh, my goodness. Uh, then right, it turned no, out enough, the one per- enough with the death, Bob. Well, I don't know. As you know, yeah, you're right. Kind of you're right. You could talk about it forever. Go on about about death forever. Well, I probably don't have time to do uh, justice to our next uh, story, so maybe we'll we'll do it some other time. I do want to uh, bring up a couple of things, and again, I maybe I'll be able to, you know, with my left hand or right hand or something like that, uh, find some information while I'm looking for the facts and figures, or maybe I should just better go with it. Um, I'm happy to report that two of my books were on the bestseller list at the Mysteries on Main Street bookstore up in Johnstown for the year 2015. Congratulations. Well, thank you. My Lost Mohawk Valley was number three. They do a 15-book uh, list. And Stories from the Mohawk Valley was number 14. Fortunately, Hidden History didn't make the list. Uh, and what I was looking for was or trying to remember, but I, I can't, but the, the woman who was had the number one and number two is a woman from Boston Spa uh, um, who writes romance fiction. You know, local author, but writes romance fiction. Apparently she's become uh, quite, quite famous for it, well-known. Right. And also, as we uh, sail along here into uh, 2016, hard to get used to being 2016, I do want to put out a, a pitch for uh, topics or people uh, to be on the Historian's Podcast. If you know uh, somebody who uh, has a, a tale from history to tell, do uh, either uh, send me an email, bobcudmore at yahoo.com, or a phone call at area 518-346-6657. And the... Uh, 
sales continue for my uh, history books, which are available here, there, and everywhere. And another uh, thing that I'd like to drum up some business, if you will, uh, for is I do uh, history talks, uh, did quite a few at the end of uh, 2015 as we were getting uh, close to the holiday season. And I have uh, several you know, scheduled this year, uh, one up in uh, Broad Auburn, uh, another one over in Del Mar, where I'll be speaking to a, a really organized uh, uh, group that gets together. Uh, they call it a... a it's advanced learning or, or learning for basically for people who are retired. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, joining those folks. So Dave, I thank you very much uh, for being with us here on this edition of the historians podcast. Invite me next time, Bob. I will. We'll do our best. <laughs>